just past 7 o'clock, and we got another big one on tap for you tonight. It's Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and Ira, the madness keeps going, and so does Ira on Sports. We find plenty to talk about. It is our draft look-ahead show. We're going to break down all the prospects that we haven't talked about yet, and really all we've gotten into uh, is that wide receiver pool. So a lot to talk about tonight, Ira. Get your opinions on uh, just who's going to be the cream of the crop and what should be a very, very good draft uh, from top to bottom. Um, Ira, we're also going to have Dan Wetzel on, and Dan has been on this show before. If you've been involved in reading any kind of sports journalism for the last decade, you've heard about Dan. Well, Dan is the premier college football writer. He also has an epic athlete series of books for young adults, and he's covered all of them. We had him on last year where he talked about his book about Steph Curry and Tom Brady. He's had one about Lionel Messi, LeBron James, Serena Williams, Alex Morgan. And this book is about Simone Biles, who I actually learned a lot. I mean, she's the famous gymnast, and I thought, boy, she's just a, a good gymnast. She won the gold medal. I didn't realize that she is perhaps arguably the greatest athlete maybe of all time. So she's in mm-hmm. that, con- I didn't really put her in that conversation. And when you read about how many world uh, gold medals she's won and how dominant she is in her sport, I mean, it's like a golfer shooting in her, in like the low fifties. And that's what he does all the time. I and mean, that's how far much that's where she's now set the bar in gymnastics and, and the gap between her and the second person. Now, you know, it's funny. And cause people like Michael Phelps, he's in commercials now still, he's a megastar. We, we got Michael Phelps crammed down our throats. Simone Miles wasn't that way. And you're right. She's got just as impressive of, of an Olympic resume. I mean, it's not just the Olympics. It was the gold, the world gold yeah, gymnastics, in gymnastics before for three years. Then she did the Olympics and now she's won two more. And now she's just so far. I mean, it's just like my, Michael Phelps touched the wall and the other one was on a lap before. I mean, that is <laughs> her gap between. I mean, it, it is a Usain Bolt and it is. But it's at a level that we it's hard to quantify in terms of. I mean, it is almost tiger like when Tiger was at the Masters mm-hmm. and winning by double-digit, uh, you know, 10, 12, 13 strokes. I mean, it is really at that level where she is so much better than everyone else, and they're all, as Dan's going to talk about, everyone else just knows they're playing for second place. And we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, can you watch some of those older events? And, you know, we were talking off-air. I didn't bring up some of those Tiger Woods events. I will go back and rewatch those Sundays at Augusta. Of, of all the sports that they're putting on TV for us to uh, take in now because there's nothing else, I think old golf is some of the best. Well, I think it's good, and I like what CBS did. I watched a little of that when they had Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods talk about with their wins and, mm-hmm. and comment. And I think that's interesting to go back and and have it's not just showing the event, but giving that insight in terms of what you were thinking. I, I like that a lot. I thought that was very. I think that they need to do more of it. instead of just showing a football game like they're having like tonight on ESPN um, a, a Brett Favre game, like mm-hmm. a, a, the Minnesota Green Bay game. Like I, I would have him in this. Like I think they need to have they need to have more color. They can't just show the event. They actually have to have people talk about it. If they're going to show a tennis match, have Nadal and Federer both talk about as they're showing about There needs to be more. Just they can't show classic. And ESPN bought this thing called called Classic Sports, and they paid a lot of money for it. And it, people didn't really catch on to it. It never really got popular. Mm-hmm. And, it, and most cable systems, you can't even get Classic Sports. Now they're running all their library of all those sports. But um, even I, who just absolutely love watching sports, it's hard for me to get into mm-hmm. some of these games. Now, I have to say that I love 
the Michael Jordan games. So I turn on NBA channel all the time, NBA TV. And when there's Michael Jordan on, I just cannot get enough of watching him play because I just can't believe how good he is. Like I'm the biggest Michael Jordan fan. And then when you watch him, you're like, he is that it's like, it's like definitely shows that I'm right. That he's the greatest of all time. Well, it's funny. ESPN has, I believe a 10 part documentary that they're about to release about Michael Jordan. And they're calling it for all the people who think LeBron is the best player ever. This is going to turn you over. <laughs> and it, you know, there's a lot of people I'm, I'm 30. If you're under 30, you didn't see Michael Jordan play. So, of course, you think LeBron is the best because you've seen him your entire life. So I'm really excited to see this and go back and catch some of that stuff from from back when, you know, your heyday of, of watching that growing up. I mean, I watched a game. He was playing uh, the Knicks the other day on in a game, and, and he had like fifty. So not the fifty-five points. It was another game. Oh no, it was, it was he was playing the Magic. It was uh, they were playing Shaquille O'Neal, and I mean, people say, well, he's not as strong as LeBron. I mean, he went up. There was this play where he dribbled and Shaq just fouled him. Now, if that happened today, Shaq would have been suspended for like five <laughs> games, penalty of fine of like two hundred thousand. Jordan just gets right back up. I mean, Shaq took Jordan's head off. Yeah. And Shaq is huge. And it's just got right back. I mean, his strength, and you just watch him play and, and how he rebounds and the defense. I think that's what anybody, and I, you know, I love the, we could talk Jordan LeBron until the cows come home. But when you watch Jordan defensively in these games, I mean, this is against the Magic in a whatever game in the middle of the season. Oh, I mean, he is, he is the best defensive player on the, on the court. He's dominating defensively, and he's dominating offensively. LeBron just, you can never say that. Even in the playoffs, yes, there are some games where he's great, but not. I mean, this is a regular season game, and he is just dominating that game. And, uh, and this is one of the reasons why you're up there <laughs> on that uh, MJ over LeBron. So, Ira, what have you been doing to um, fill your time? You know, it's, uh, sports consume a large part of your life. I found myself, Ira, all weekend— watching Tampa Bay Downs and Gulfstream, watching horse racing just because it was the only thing on. A lot of my friends are, I didn't watch a lot of horse racing, but it is interesting that you can still, that's the only live events that are mm-hmm. going on right now and should be, I mean, would probably be for the time being. We want everyone to be safe and healthy. And, and unfortunately, you know, as I said, that's what we're trying to do on our show. We bring in authors. I mean, we have a guy next week, Ben Cohn is the Wall Street Journal writer who talked about uh, um, the hot hand, which is good. And we're going to be talking about the draft. And I guess, you know, we want people to stay at home and stay safe. But at the same time, uh, just, you know, we just keep talking about sports. You're listening to Ira on sports. This is the True Oldies channel. We'll have Dan Wetzel on in uh, just about 15 or 20 minutes. Yahoo Sports uh, lead writer. So Ira, there's so much uncertainty in the world right now. Um, But there are certain things that we do know as far as sports are shaping up. Let's talk about what's going on with baseball so far. Well, I don't know if they know what's going on, but baseball keeps throwing out ideas. It just shows you, I think, where baseball is. I mean, now their next idea was to play at the spring training sites that so yeah. we would have here, but then they wouldn't play. They wouldn't travel the team. So the Mets, the, the Cardinals, the uh, and the Marlins and, and the Astros would all play. And Nationals would all play games against each other. And then they would have the Arizona teams. At first, they said everybody in Arizona. But again, I mean, when you look where it's coming, I just don't see this happening. I mean, they keep throwing out ideas, but you starting getting pushback from the players about the quarantine idea. They're saying, no, I'm, I'm, my wife's going to give birth to a baby. I can't be quarantined during that time. You're going to get a lot of pushback. And I think if you get a significant amount of people that's saying, look, I know I'm going to give up money, but I don't want to be quarantined for uh, three months to play this. I'm not going to do that. And it seems like I don't, I just, as I said before, I do not see baseball playing this year. Yeah, it's going to be tough to get it in. And if they do, I just no chance. I can't see 162 games. What about college football? Eh? 
I just think like some of the coaches, like Mike Gundy came out earlier this week and said, uh, I suggest he would hope that they play. He got blasted for even suggesting that they could play college football. And I think he's, I was more hopeful, not that he was saying it had to play. And I think when Dabo Sweeney went on of Clemson, the Clemson coach went on first take and he was talking before Easter and saying, well, I mean, he's very religious and was talking about Jesus and about how we hopefully will get a cure for Corona and things will happen. And it's more of a hopefulness. And Max Kellerman just blasted him for even thinking that they would play college football. And again, I I don't think it's bad to say, boy, I hope we can solve this and I I, I hope we can get back to sports and everything. I I don't think there's anything wrong with having aspirations for that. But these coaches who have been making those comments now have to walk them back. And I I mean, they weren't saying we have to play, but more they're saying, I hope things change and it's four months away and something could happen. But I'm, I'm amazed that at how these uh, Gundy from Oklahoma State and Sweeney from Clemson just got blasted for even suggesting that. So you got to give a little bit of credit to um, to the NBA here, Ira, because they've come outside the box with, with a few ideas. Well, they're having people play at, at horse at their home, and uh, I watched a little of it. I didn't really get think it was that Chauncey great. Billups beat Trey Young. Uh, yeah, I think, last and night. I think <laughs> the shots. I mean, I think it's interesting what they do. But like one is shooting in the outside, and one is shooting in a gym. I think it's a big difference, mm-hmm. and it's it's fun. I mean, they're joking around but i don't think it comes across as well as they would would think it i just it, i'm not impressed by it so much but uh uh the nba trainers came out said that they think that now they'd have to get a at least a month to get the players in mm-hmm. shape and and that's the one thing if these teams try to bring these leagues back fast uh you're gonna have injuries i mean these these athletes are used to be training i mean they're just they're, they're regimented every, every day, day. <laughs> and now they're i mean you're seeing these college athletes like pushing cars around and lifting tires outside and i i heard nick saban saying he talks to his team four times a week for an hour each time they're allowed to do that but it's not like going into i mean if you saw like in alabama their weightlifting center and how they they are just track everything they track what they eat they track how much they sleep they track every amount of their day i mean it's like they're so regimented i think it is hard to just go just right back into sports and and without any pride you know, you're, you're looking at, at serious injuries if that happens no absolutely you are and it's going to be one of these slippery slopes that we have to get into here at some point um one of the longest holdouts, Ira, was old Dana White with the UFC. Well, he tried to get an event. He was committed to do two four, uh, UFC 249 in California at an Indian reservation. But the governor convinced ESPN to put pressure on him not to do it. Now, he is going ahead with that island idea, and that might work. I mean, you only have to put a few people on this island. I mean, I'd assume you'd bring, like, the Roman uh, Colosseum or something <laughs> built on that island in the middle of that with no one else on it. So I think that might happen. But it, it clearly – it just shows you that the amount of pushback he had from even just having a UFC fights that I really don't think we're looking at sports for a long time because he was set to go for that. 249 would be this coming weekend and now was forced to, to not have it. Uh, let's talk about auto racing, Ira, because I was not expecting how this was going to go. Unbelievable. I mean, these at, this is the second week in a row. But last week, Bubba Wallace lost a sponsor because he was playing eSports. So he's playing the video game and he got and he, and he quit in the middle of it. And so one of the sponsors uh, 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 terminated him. And this week, Kyle Larson said a racial uh, uh, obscenity during an eSports event. And now he was <laughs> suspended from Chip Ganassi. I mean, he's one of the he's won four races. I mean, yeah. like. I mean, these athletes are doing these esports, and I guess they're thinking it's too relaxed, and and they're doing things that they wouldn't do if they were driving the cars, and it's causing. I mean, I I would have to doubt whether I wanted to be involved in this esports if you can't, you know, act in a certain way. But it is funny that they would had uh, Kyle Larson got suspended now by Chip Ganassi Racing, and Bubba Wallace lost a sponsorship, and they're not even racing, haven't even been in a car. 
It's crazy to think about. As I run Sports True Oldies channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's get into our NFL draft prep. Um, Ira, first and foremost, what are you looking for, you think, when you're looking at some of these uh, prospects coming up? And this is going to be a tougher year because they're not going to get to get in-depth de- in late like, like they would right now. You know, it's always the, the draft. You always look at... That you look at the star teams, and, and when I look at like a running back or wide, I want to look at how they played against other good players. Like it's one thing to score three, run for three hundred yards against Alcorn State. You know mm-hmm. when you're when your offensive line is dominating, the, like when Penn State, you, know, you see Penn State games, and and you can get these runs of seventy and eighty yards. It's easy because your offensive line dominates your defensive line. You usually have someone in the secondary that's going to be. Uh, you know, going to accounting school or something, not playing in the <laughs> NFL, trying to tackle you, and that's where you're going to get those big yards. So I, do, I sort of t- discount those games. I know it's nice to get the stats, and those are important, but I want to see how, when they're going against an elite team, how they play. Now, of course, when you're coming playing at a small school, you don't get that benefit. So you have to say, because there's been this great, you know, we talked about Jerry Rice last week. I mean, uh, small school players have done great in the NFL, but I do think when you're looking at these big school players, I sort of dim- dismiss the Numbers like they had four sacks in a game yeah. against a guy that is like you're a hundred pounds bigger than. That, not, that there's high school players yeah, that are better not, than. Him. And then and then also there's been a lot of injuries. Like the question I think a lot of people are looking at is that there's a lot of players that look good but didn't really play last year. They had they were injured almost all last year. And how well they're going to play after being out? It's not just the Tua situation who actually played most of the games last year, but other players that really were looking at the drafted that are going to be drafted high that that really haven't played in two years. So I think that's a factor. And then also a lot of players have played at a position. And we talk about that like in basketball where someone might be a guard, but they have to play the biggest guy on the team so they have to play center. I mean, I give, we're going to talk about Yitter Grasmatos from Penn State. He's a defense. He didn't, he had a great 2018 year, dominating. And then 2019 wasn't as good, but he ended up being playing over the nose tackle. But in the NFL, he's not going to be playing over, he's not going to be like a, a nose tackle. He's going to be an edge rusher. So he's playing at a position. You see a lot of people that were playing like corner that should play safety. And you have to factor that into it. And then you look at like a lot of factors when I'm looking at these drafts is that senior bowl workout. They all went to the senior bowl right when the season ended. Mm-hmm. There was a senior bowl and that's when you really get to see these guys practice. And some people look great at the senior bowl and others look bad. And then you look at the combine and what they did at the combine. Some people performed, some didn't, and some helped themselves a lot. So looking at all those factors come together and I think that's where it comes, you know, in terms of deciding who's going to be drafted and who's not and what position they're going to be drafted in. All right, let's start off with the running backs, Ira. And, um, Running back's a weird position these days. It's kind of just an expendable guy. And the only teams that I would take an early running back on are a team that is just a running back away. A Kansas City type situation where they don't really they don't have any pressing needs. And so why not add a skill player? Because you can get these guys in the third and fourth rounds that are just as good, if not better. Last year was a little hit and miss. Of course, you saw Josh Jacobs um, from Oakland, who was phenomenal. But then you saw some, some guys that just didn't do so great. Um, Singletary, Montgomery, they did good. Um, uh, Alexander Madison back up on the Vikings looked good. He went super late. So I don't know if it's a consensus number one overall pick, but it really looks like DeAndre Swift will be the first one off the board. I'm starting to see a little bit movement on Swift. I mean, Swift at Georgia, and I, I told you, we talked about this before, I'm not sold on him. I think that, I mean, but you read the experts and they say, boy, he's better than Sony Michelle who went to New England. He's better than Nick Chubb at Cleveland. Uh, everyone and Nick George, Chubb's good. <laughs> everyone raves about him. I mean, he ran like a 4.48, which is good, but not like super duper duper fast. And I don't know. I just think that I, I'm not sold on him. I, I watched him play in some big games uh, against the SEC championship game. He had uh, two carries for uh, the 13 yards and 
and three catches for 18. Against Florida, he had 25 carries for 86 yards. So in the Florida game, I wasn't really that impressed. He carried the ball, didn't seem to be able to break tackles. I'm not sold on him. I, I mean, I, I, I guess everyone likes how he looks, but I just, I'm not sold on Swift. I would not draft him in the first round. Let's talk about uh, Jonathan Taylor from Wisconsin. That's the one I love. I mean, he's someone who, three years of running, and this year he had 250 yards against Iowa, 204 against Nebraska, had 148 against Ohio State, who we're seeing has like four or five yeah. first and second round picks. To me, and then he goes to the to the combine and runs. Everyone said, "Ah, oh, Taylor doesn't look that fast." He ran a four three nine, which is like wide receiver level. So here's a guy that is big and strong, and then he runs a four three nine. Um, he's carried the ball for two thousand three yards last year, twenty one hundred yards in two thousand eighteen, and nineteen hundred yards in in two thousand seventeen. I think Taylor from Wisconsin. Now he fumbles the ball. He's had some you know those things, but I I think he's the by far, best running back. What about Clyde Edwards-Hillier from LSU? You know, again, you like him because he's fast and he played on the LSU team and he played well in those big games. In the national championship game, dominating there against uh, Clemson at 16 carries for 110 yards, five catches for 54 yards against Florida. The same team we talked about earlier with Swift, he carried it only 13 times for 134 yards and two touchdowns. And even against Bama, remember that Bama game where he had nine catches for 77 yards? So in those big games, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was just tremendous. So I, I, I like him. I think he's going to, I think he'd be a great pick. People have him projected going to the second or third round, but um, you know, these are picks, you know, for fantasy wise, the running, this is key because you mm-hmm. know, like last year, Jacobs came and did great. I thought Montgomery from was going to be great for, for Iowa State, came out to the Bears. Everyone said he's going to be our star back. He was terrible. I yeah. mean, I, I, I would have won. I would have probably won fantasy if I would have picked Jacobs instead of Montgomery. I missed it. And Jacobs was picked in the first and Montgomery in the third round. But it was a bad pick. And then uh, so, I mean, that's what these running backs are very important. What about Cam Akers from FSU? You know, again, he had a terrible offensive line. Just awful. The, the, his line was awful, so he couldn't put up the big numbers that everyone has. But people compare him to Kareem Young, uh, Kareem Hunt. But, like, again, he's someone who, against Louisiana Monroe, 200 yards. Against Clemson, 34 yards. So, clearly, he put up whatever numbers he had against those bad teams. And then uh, you're going to see uh, – this guy's all over the place. It's J.K. Dobbins from Ohio State. I said last week, I'm saying this week, to me, he's behind Taylor. I, I saw him live two, for two years against Penn State. I thought he was the best player that Ohio State on the field at those times. It was dominating. Penn State had trouble uh, against him. Against Michigan, against Penn State, he had 157 yards, two touchdowns. Against Michigan, 211 yards, four touchdowns. The Big Ten Championship gave him 178 yards, uh, 72 yards and a touchdown. I mean, even against Clemson, he had 174. I mean, this he is a stud. Like, he ran a four five forty. Like, I don't know what, I don't, again, Dobbins to me, I, if I'm wrong, let's, can we do this like a year from now and say, <laughs> am I wrong on Dobbins and Taylor? I think these two stand out as by far the best running backs. But people have them going in, like in the second and third round. And what do you think about Zach Moss from Utah? I saw him live against USC. Um, a little smaller than others, but someone who sort of is like a third down type of back, I think he's going to, now he had some injuries this year, but still ran for 1,400 yards. Um, people have going from the second to fourth round, but it's, but in the 40, it was a 4.65, which is pretty slow for someone who is, you expect something faster than that um but you know a nice player who who could catch on somewhere um let's wrap it up with uh with uh well let's keep it from uf michael perrine because he's probably going to go as well 
That's another. See another one who had his just a weird type of year. Um, he played well in the bowl game. I saw against Virginia. He had a very good game against there. Um, injuries. I mean, even this semester, he only six hundred seventy-six yards, but he did have forty catches. The way the NFL is, he seems to be that complimentary back where they're going to have a two-person backfield, and he's going to be the one catching. I mean, he clearly can catch out of the backfield. So I think I see him as more of that, uh, just the second back in a backfield catching a lot of passes. So let's move on to quarterbacks and. I'd say last year's draft it, it's going to go down as a decent one. We obviously we don't know how that's going to pan out, but Kyler Murray looked good. Daniel Jones had his moments. Drew Locke seems to be the answer in uh, in Denver. Jarrett Stidham will probably be starting for New England. Gardner Minshew won a lot of games with Jacksonville. Um, so this year it could be way way better than that. There is the potential there, and it looks like Joe Burrow is the consensus number one. And it doesn't look like uh, Cincinnati wants to trade that pick. No, I mean seventy six percent of his passes, almost six thousand yards. He had 60 touchdowns and six interceptions. I mean, his, his stats are ridiculous. He does it all. I've seen him play live twice. I'm blown away when you watch him play. Uh, they were just, I was talking to Nick Saban, and Saban was talking about Tua and Burrow, and he's like, and, and Dabo Sweeney was talking about him also. And it's like, this guy is great. I mean, they are saying, you know, he is, and I just can, I, I would be, if he is not an all pro, pro bowl, Player, I'll be shocked. I just can't believe he couldn't do that. And, and the guy who was uh, supposed to be the number one overall draft pick before Joe Burrow popped in the scene is Tua, and we just don't know what kind of shape he's in. Wow, Mel Kiper today came out and said he thinks that Justin Herbert of or of the of Oregon would go ahead of Tua. I could see it. I think it would be a mistake. I mean, the way I look at it is the Dolphins are obviously worried about him. If, or they wouldn't be trying to trade up to one so much. So just in my head, I'm thinking that Dolphins with the fifth pick, they might be all in on Herbert instead of letting him slide. So Saban gave a great interview today. Now, first of all, Tua, who had 33 touchdowns and three interceptions last year, 71% of completion. And the year before, had 43 touchdowns and six interceptions. The one thing he said is that that it's not – he's not – Saban goes, I'm not concerned about Tua's injuries. I He's healed from everything, but I'm concerned. I, but I think he's learned that he doesn't have to make that extra. There, all his injuries have been when he's been trying to do something a little bit extra, and he's got to learn that like you cannot. He almost criticized him. He said, "He goes, look, I don't need an extra pass." He goes, "A punt is okay with our defense, with our team. I'd rather have my quarterback than punt the ball." Like he was, mm-hmm. he was almost bitter about that. Almost I, in that interview today, he was almost like, you know, if he just would have stayed healthy, would have won the national championship. I didn't need him to. I need him to get hurt. And, and, and he needed to, to make that extra play that in, the, in the game where he hurt his hip. So both of those guys have a lot of personality. They're great in front of the camera. Then you get to Justin Herbert. I heard an interview with him yesterday uh, on the Dan Patrick Show, and he just didn't seem to have that, I don't know what it is, just that, that charisma and the charm that National Football League quarterbacks usually have. You don't need to have it. Eli Manning didn't have it, and he won two Super Bowls. But Justin Herbert probably going really high. He going high, but you know, 193 yards against Utah, 174 against Oregon State. Um, he lost to Arizona State and threw two key interceptions. I'm just not sold on Herbert. I, I I'm telling you, he's going to be in the top. He looks like he's going to be a top five or six pick, and uh, I don't I don't see him starting in the NFL. Like he might start a game, but I don't think he's going to. I'm not. I'll be shocked. I mean, he's six five. He's he has six six, two hundred thirty six pounds. I mean, he looks like the quarterback. Yeah. But I just I, I watched him play so many college games, and he just didn't seem like someone who was going to take the game and take it over and win it for him. I, I'm not sold on him at all. You know, it, there's a weird little thing where typically big school quarterbacks don't pan out. If you look around, who the best quarterbacks are, typically they didn't go to massive powerhouses like the previous three guys did. 
Then comes Jordan Love. Heard today that seven coaches have called Utah State to talk to the coach about Jordan Love. Um, this guy, he's kind of a wild card here, but could end up having a great NFL career. Not sold on him either. I mean, I know he played at Utah State. I watched two or three of his games this year, but 20 touchdowns and 17 interceptions. I mean, he had three interceptions against BYU. They lost 42-14. Three interceptions against LSU, which isn't, but they lost 42-6. And I don't think LSU's defense was that great where he could have actually put some more points up. And then they lost to Wake Forest. He had three interceptions in that game also. I just think he makes mistakes. I, I think he's like more of a third and fourth round pick. I don't know why Jordan Love is up here in that first round. Like, I think it, you're going to waste a first round pick on him. I mean, Dan, they compared him to Daniel Jones last year. Daniel Jones had a much better college career, much better coaching. He didn't throw 17. Like, I, I think he went to Duke and everything, but I just don't see, I don't get the Herbert. I can understand the Herbert love. I do not get the Jordan love love, as they say. Um, but he looks like he's going to be a, another first round pick, and I, I just don't see it. What do you think about Jacob Eason out of Washington? No, you know, he's someone who couldn't even win the job at Georgia, had to go to Washington, and I just not, well, I guess you'd say about Burrow also. But uh, against Colorado, he had 14 points and five sacks. He only got 13 points against Stanford. Not really impressed. He threw 23 touchdowns and eight interceptions. Um, he's someone a lot of people said, now they probably won't play college football, so it was a smart move, but should have gone back to school and not come out so early. What do you think about Jake Fromm from Georgia? You know what? Last year, if he came out, people thought he was, but this year it looked like, I mean, that was the problem. Georgia's offense didn't go. I mean, the problem was Georgia's offense this year. They didn't, they weren't explosive. That's why they would have better team. We're seeing all these people drafted on defense. I don't think Jake Fromm, again, back up in the NFL, I wouldn't worry about drafting him. What about Jalen Hurts? And this one's going to be, he's going to get drafted, but it's going to be, it could be really late. I like Jalen Hurts. I think that there's something about him that I think give him about a year or two, but he's someone who we talked about last week that you could probably use at different positions and and and, and work in there and more like an Anton Randall and have as a wide receiver and as a running back and as a thrower and maybe get a Lamar Jackson type situation with him in terms of if, if we can, you know, he had 32 touchdowns and only eight, eight interceptions. I mean, he had 73%. He completed his patches at Alabama. Just because he couldn't beat out Tua doesn't mean he's not that good a quarterback and he almost won the Heisman Trophy last year. So... I I like I I think Hurts. I if I if I had a third, I think he should get drafted like third round, fourth round. I think that's a good pick. You're listening to Iron Sports True Oldies Channel, just about five minutes away from Yahoo writer uh, Dan Wetzel joining us here on the True Oldies Channel. Ira, just real quick, uh, this is, there's a lot of uh, tackles to talk about. Who you got your eyes on as far as centers and guards? Well, I mean, what they're talking about this. I mean, it's it, to me the whole offensive line. Is, you know, is 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 a, is a is a mess in terms of the, the one that they're talking about at center is Cesar Ruiz from Michigan. He's uh, you know projected to go the second or third round. The uh, center from LSU, Cushberry. I love the name Cushberry. I think that's a great <laughs> name for an offensive lineman. But uh, another third rounder. And then in guards, I mean, there's a guy Robert Hunt from Louisiana Lafayette. Uh, he played tackle in college, but they like him. And also a Damian Lewis from LSU. Uh, and but these are like. In the in the way that the you remember the movie The Blind Side, mm-hmm. the tackles get all the money, the tackles get drafted early because you want to protect the quarterback. The guards and centers don't get the love that the tackles get. No, it, it's always been like that. Um, okay, let's get into the tackles because this you know we keep talking about how this could be a massive wide receiver draft. This could be a, a massive offensive line and tackle draft. But then again, we've seen some of these just. Flop so badly. Remember the draft with um, Eric Fisher, Luke Jockel, DJ Fluker, all top five picks, and only Eric Fisher is even decent, and even he didn't live up to a number one overall pick. So this one, I, I'm, 
I'm, I'm debating on taking a guy early, and it's so funny how they switch constantly. No matter whose board you look at, they're in a different position. Let's talk about the biggest guy. It's Mackay Becton from Louisville, and this guy looks like a refrigerator, Ira. <laughs> well, the one thing about tackles, and that's why about the blind side, is that when they make a mistake, it's like they're blocking the side. You know, I guess if you're a left-hander, it'd be different, but they're blocking the the, the left tackle would be blind, or would be blocking the side where the quarterback can't see. So if they, you know, if, if a guard somehow lets his man beat him, the quarterback can see. Look. Uh, someone's someone's rushing in. I'm going to be sacked. But on from the quote the blind side, they can't see, and that's why you're going to get your quarterbacks that you're paying thirty million dollars to, you know, getting smashed because they don't see someone. So whenever they make a mistake, it's a big mistake, and that's why the edge rushers. So we're seeing in the draft the edge rushers are going to get drafted high, and the tackles get drafted high because, and the quarterbacks get drafted high because those are the positions that people, you know, where the games can change. Where if they if an edge, so if a tackle makes a mistake, if the Eric Fisher is making a mistake, you know, guards make mistakes too, but. You don't see it so much. It's not and they so, got a center next to him. Yeah, to help. they have a center. Everyone else. The tackle, you know, you let a tackle lets the guy go by. And suddenly the quarterback smash. He's breaking his collarbone. The ball's running around. Someone's picking it up and running it for a touchdown. Yeah. So that's what they need. Beckham is huge. Um, I, again, I see him at first. I mean, ESPN has his projections of who were these players going to be, and they projected Pro Bowl. I mean, they actually literally said this guy is a Pro Bowl player. He's yeah. going to be an elite player. So it's hard to say I can't draft a player, an elite Pro Bowl player, like a tackle when I really need that to protect my quarterback and to and everything. Yeah, I know, but it's just so. I mean, Laramie Tunsil was supposed to be the number one overall pick, went thirteen to the Dolphins, and really just hit his stride last year. That's not somebody I want to take in the first couple of picks. Um, Jedrick Wills, uh, he played right tackle at Alabama because Tua is a lefty. So they're saying they don't know if he can really play left tackle at the level as he's going to be drafted at. So what do you think about Jedrick right. Wills? He projected Tua's blind side. Now, it wasn't his fault when Tua got hurt that one play. It technically wasn't his fault. It was another, Tua was running out of the play. Mm-hmm. And that was so don't, you can't blame it. But he's 6'4", 312 pounds. Uh, you know, he's played in the Alabama system. You tend to think that... The way they play. Now, in the old days, when Alabama would run the ball so much, you would say, boy, a tackle from there is not important. But now they pass it so much in such a complicated passing game. Uh, you would think that he would be well-trained in that system and how they run. And uh, So, I look, I think he's probably going to be someone who's going to be another great uh, NFL player. A couple of weeks ago, I feel like Andrew Thomas was the consensus number one, maybe three months ago. And every month, he just seems to drop down a little bit more and a little bit more. He's out of Georgia. What do you think? Well, you know what about Andrew Thomas? So, I mean, people don't watch tackles. I know we're trying to make this more exciting than history people watch sports, but I find it interesting when I was reading about the defensive players, and they're all saying, well, he played great, great this game, but against Georgia, he played bad. And they played like Chasem, the guy from LSU. And Marlon Davidson from was like, Marlon Davidson dominated all these games, but played bad against Georgia, against Andrew Thomas. It seems like all these other guys who were thinking about drafting early played terrible against Andrew Thomas, which makes me believe that these are NFL players, quality players that you're drafting the first round, then why in the world if Andrew Thomas is stopping them, he should be a great player because he stopped. He didn't, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't beating people that were 100 pounds less than him. He was going against other NFL players, dominating them. So I really like him at, at Georgia. And I, I think he, you know, clearly he should be someone who's going to be drafted high. I see this guy mocked to the Giants at number four overall a lot, and I don't like it. It's Tristan Wirfs from <laughs> Iowa. Again, 6'5", 320. Um, it's it's funny because you can, he's I I mean I saw Penn State play him and he gave up some tackles I mean Penn State 
Penn State had some sacks on him. So when you watch him in a game and see the big plays, you're like, wow, Tristan Wirfs is going to be one of the top five players in the draft. Mm-hmm. And then so, but I know it's like one player or whatever, but you see uh, ESPN again, and he's another one of those Pro Bowl projections. So I saw in some polls, you know, Wirfs was going like the fourth or fifth tackle, and others he was going to be like, you know, the first. But again, we're all talking, when we're talking about tackles, I know this is not so sexy and exciting, but these are guys are all first round picks. Like we're talking about first rounders here. We're not talking second rounders. Yeah, there was definitely a shift about 10 years ago where defensive ends and tackles started going from where you wouldn't even know who these guys were to top 10 picks because like you said the league has changed um last line we'll talk about this guy shot up the boards ira josh jones from houston and this was a guy i didn't know his name a month ago he might be going in the first round Mel Kuyper has him. I mean, I again, I looked at one a month and a half ago, and it wasn't even in the top 10 or 12. And now Kuyper has him going, you know, in the top, like, 25. I mean, it's amazing. And, and someone, you know, he, he, they're saying he's going to go to the Dolphins with their pick. Uh, from, 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 but, again, do you know why people like him? He went to the Senior Bowl. And they said he was the best player at the Senior Bowl at any mm. position. Like, he was dominating the Senior Bowl. They liked how he ran. They liked his attitude. I mean, the Senior Bowl is that all the coaches come, and for, like, almost, like, it's over a week. It's, like, almost a week and a half. They get to really see the players. They interview them. It's, it's not like the combine. So now, if you go to the Senior Bowl and you do things and you play, you can – he is the perfect person in terms of example of someone who went to the Senior Bowl, looked great, and then elevated his – and made himself – millions of dollars, really, because we're talking, that's what we're talking about. If it's someone going in the third or fourth round to the first round, we're talking millions of dollars. Um, Ira, we'll do defense after this, but first, let's catch up with Dan Wetzel from Yahoo Sports. This is Ira from Ira on Sports. We're talking to Dan Wetzel, the Yahoo Sports national columnist and the author of these epic athletes books, which I love and which are great for young adults, just tremendous. Uh, he's wrote one on Alex Morgan. We had him last time when he had one on Steph Curry, Serena Williams, Tom Brady, Lionel Messi, LeBron James, and his new one out is on Simone Biles. So, Dan, thanks a lot for coming on these uh, to Ira on Sports. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So we talk about how everyone's stuck at home for a, a while and, and, and kids are looking, you know, there's no sports on TV for me to watch. But this you put these books out that are just great for young adults, I mean, of all ages to read about these superstar athletes. And you present it in such a way that, you know, I, adults can read the books, young adults can read the book. They're perfect. And I really suggest that, that, that the listeners read these with your with children, grandchildren. They're just great books. And, and you have this one and you have Patrick Mahone's book coming out in, in, in soon you know after that so these are just a great number of books to have well i appreciate you saying that and and, and reading it and um i think uh if your house is like mine with my kids there's uh an overabundance of screen time if you will uh especially now pretty hard to kind of police it with so little to do but um so reading a book uh isn't always the most popular thing and and, and there's certainly some uh, you know, some kids it just there aren't that many books for, but um, these are these are easy to read. Um, yet I think uh, with enough info and enough detail to to keep them going, it's it's uh, you know, and about about people that they they care about, contemporary stuff, uh, you know, and uh, their their current heroes. So um, we found that there's been. Uh, Kind of a surprising, uh, maybe not surprising, but a, a, a good amount of people who just said, "Yeah, my kid doesn't, my son doesn't read a book. He's read these, um, <laughs> or he couldn't put the Tom Brady book down, or he really liked the Steph on uh, the Steph Curry book, or something like that." So um, maybe now more than ever, these books, uh, these books really work as uh, you try to try to keep sanity in your house. 
keep sanity and also keep sports. I mean, it's something to learn more about sports. You can discuss and, and, and every, is discussed with your children about these athletes and talk about what they read and you can read the book along with them. But the Simone Biles book is just, I mean, I learned a lot. I mean, I thought you have a sports show and I know that Simone was great and she's this great gymnast, but I, then you read it and you're like, she's arguably maybe the greatest, you know, she put her name up to one of the greatest of all time. I mean, the fact that she's from 2013, 14, 15, and 18 and 19 world champion, 2016 gold medalist. Since 2013, she's been entered 23 competitions and won them all from all around. Uh, you know, you compare it to like Nadia Komichi, who we think is always the perfect 10, and her, her, not her accomplishments just dwarf Nadia's. Uh, just, it's amazing. I didn't realize when you put it all together, and that's why she's missing that next Olympics, and this would have been her, you know, total culmination of a career, but I didn't realize how great she was, sort of underappreciated in the general public. Yeah, I think it is, because there's so little understanding of um, gymnastics, and so, you know, Nadia Komanichi was obviously a great gymnast, and, and they had the different scoring systems, so you had the perfect tens, which sort of resonated uh, and made the sport popular. Uh, where you don't you don't really have that in uh, currently, um, but not only does Simone win more against her contemporaries, the way she wins, uh, the degree of difficulty in her routines are are so far above what anyone else is attempting. It's almost impossible for her to lose. So she can she doesn't have to be perfect to win because what she's attempting is dramatically more advanced than her competition. And um, I think not a lot of people pay attention to gymnastics outside of the Olympics. And then one of the things I was on, uh, I've covered Olympic gymnastics uh, for being back to, I guess, Athens Olympics. Um, One of of the issues with it is the way NBC um, televises it is they, they, they make it look like it's close. And there's drama when, in a lot of times, it's it's like this is already a 30-point blowout in a basketball game. Um, but the way they can kind of rig it to the common thing, it's like, oh, my gosh, if she doesn't do well here on the floor exercise, she may not win the gold. And it's like she would literally have to quit in the middle of the floor <laughs> exercise to not win the gold. Um, she would have to fall on every single tumbling pass, and she still could probably win the gold. So a lot of it is the way it's kind of done and then the fact that – so I think everyone marvels at what she does and you see these leaps and you see these things. But what she's pulling off is her degrees of difficulty are just astronomically better than the others to the point where at the, even in uh, – and this would have been even crazier in 2020. She's even better than she was in 2016. But the other gymnasts literally said um, – I remember Allie Raceman and, and, and uh, uh, Lori Hernandez saying, you know, we're just shooting for silver. If you win silver, you've won gold because Simone's different. She's just, she's off on her own. So all the rest of us are just trying to win silver. And if we can do that, then we feel like we've, we've won gold. And these are the, <laughs> this is the second, third, fourth best people in the world. Just a little like Usain Bolt was running. It was like, I ain't beating them. So I'm just trying to do my personal best. And that's how good Simone Biles is. And so it's, it's, um, hopefully explain in there. But, yeah, she hasn't lost in forever, and she won't lose until, um, you know, until she hangs it up. And one of her advantages is she's not young. A lot of times um, you need to be 16 years old because of the way your body grows. Uh, she's, she's grown. This is her body. And, obviously, she trains extremely hard, but she's, 
she has the frame naturally as a grown-up that is perfect for gymnastics, where often that is kind of limited by uh, just turning 18 years old and uh, or 17 years old. So she she's a force of nature as long as she wants to go. And what's amazing about Simone is that you would think that, okay, when she was one year old, she was tumbling, and two years old, she was this. I mean, she grew up in a foster household, uh, bounced around between her mother and her grandparents, and then finally, until she was six years old, was actually just in a stable house with her grandparents raising her. Uh, from usually, when you're six, I mean, they're, they're in gymnastics went like two and three. So it was just, she didn't really, she got a very late start as being a gymnast. She did. She has an incredible amount of natural ability that goes along with the, the, the training that she puts in now. But yeah, her father, um, who is, was originally her grandfather, but it's now her father has adopted her. He would, he, he says he was, you know, he'd be in his living room watching football game and, and Simone would come flying through the living room and use the, um, you know, use the end table as a, as a vault to pump off of and all these crazy things. And he just remember being like, this girl that we just adopted is so bouncy. Like we got to do something to, um, to just get the energy out. And they had a trampoline and she'd be out there. But then one day during um, school uh, or whatever, you know, whatever it was, they went on a field trip to a gymnastics hall uh, or the, the field trip they're going to go on got canceled because of the rain. I think they were going to like a zoo. And so instead they scrambled and went to this gymnastics hall and they're all in there. Uh, the kids basically, and she could do a standing tuck, uh, flip, um, at six years old, at, which is extremely hard. Um, but you know, you'll see literally like college gym, uh, college cheerleaders will do a flip, right? It's just your basic standing flip, but it's very difficult. And this gymnastics coach came over and goes, well, where do you train? And, said nowhere her brother was there too was just this is just what i can do and she said wait what and she got her a flyer and said bring this home to your mother and come back and then she came back and then in the first day of that class the uh the you know basically it's like a wreck gymnastics coach tumbling co- you know just you know with six-year-olds running around and this other coach was far more uh experienced saw her across the way and was like what the heck is this and it was like, boom, your star is found. And so even then, it took, you know, many, many years to get great. But there was a natural ability that just blew people away. Like, there's no way this girl can do this without any training. And she could do it. But then she uh, she was training in this gym and, and it became, when she was like 13 years old, her coach, uh, Coach Bannon, was sending her to uh, Marta Caroli, the famous uh, gymnast, the most famous gymnast coach with her husband, Bella. And Marta was like, ah, she's too old. Like she got this idea that she's really, she's not good enough. She, and she was strong on the floor and the vault, but not the, uh, beam. There's four events, the beam and the, and the uh, uneven bars and bars, bars, bars right. she's not great at. Yeah. And, and then not so great being one of the top five in the world, but <laughs> not, yeah. yeah. But at that time, yeah. But at that time, but it's like, it's amazing is that even Marta Caroli could not see that this was going to become the greatest gymnast of all time. And, and that was only, you know, a few years ago. It was just, it's so, so her ability to just go from that at, at 13 to suddenly then become super is just amazing. Yeah, Simone is, Simone's personality is, is, not, is a little more fun-loving than um, sometimes is expected of a gymnast. 
the training is so rigorous and so time consuming and so precise and it can be, uh, you know, Simone was one of them, but almost any elite gymnast becomes uh, homeschooled at some point. You basically train most of the day and it's, it's exhausting. And she just had not hit that mental level where she was ready to be as committed as some of the other, uh, some of the other kids. So there were certain things she struggled with, but once that, once she really committed to that, uh, you know, you, you had the perfect mix of, of uh, just incredible uh, physical skill and then mental toughness and emotional toughness that, that you need in gymnastics. It's just a very, very difficult sport. Now, one of the benefits of not really hitting that until, you know, 13, 14 years old, she was really inspired by the Olympics, um, is she, she didn't get burned out, you know, so she's still doing it. So, you know, it, it, it may have been a more healthy way of actually doing it. Now, one, again, one of the problems is just physically development. It, you, you can often be better as a smaller, you just too much size, too much height can really, uh, you know, really affect your, your ability to perform at that truly elite level. She didn't have that. So she had a little bit more of a, of a window, but uh, it took a while. It took a lot of battles with, with uh, the Corollis and a lot of, heartbreak and a lot of frustration too uh there's no such thing as a total natural in gymnastics you cannot just roll out of bed and do it and and even the great simone biles who could roll out of bed and do it better than anyone else (laughs) um the story tells that and i think that's important and it's important on all of these epic athletes is we we spend a lot of time uh in these books talking about what the what the athletes were like in middle school and in early high school the, the age group that would read these and even like you know late elementary school because you look and say Simone Biles that's incredible but you say this is a kid who had uh you know all sorts of family hurdles and struggled with confidence and didn't know what she wanted to do or you look at Stephen Curry and he's he's incredible well when he was 13 he was too small uh Serena Williams right greatest female tennis player all time or something close when she was 13 she was your older sister is better than you you'll never be as good as your older sister Right, very, very uh, common themes that any kid would hear, and so it's even for the great ones, it's not as simple as simple as you would think. As good as they became, and as good as they were then, those same doubts, confidence, motivations, family pressures, all the different things that go into it, and then how do they overcome it? Uh, how do they overcome family issues or divorces, or you know, do they lean on their faith? Do they? lean on their older brother. What, is it one coach? What is it? And so we try to really focus on that time. And I think that's one of the reasons it connects so well with the audience, because that's what these kids are going through at that time. Uh, they're not just looking. They don't want to just read about how great Simone Biles is, but how'd she get so great? And you mentioned in the book how you talked earlier about how she's doing routines now that are at such a high level. It's ridiculous. I mean, she's attempting things. Everything is named after her. You said if someone does the first one to do a routine, it's named after them. And she now has like everything named after her because she's so advanced. But when she was in, when she was struggling in 2011, she didn't want to, she took the, she was too afraid to do the more advanced routine. She always took the easier one. So her degree of difficulty was so low. So it's so interesting to see that, uh, that she was able to go from having this low degree of difficulty to have by far the highest degree of difficulty ever as a, as an athlete. Right. And that's just, that's confidence and that's um, putting in the work so that you feel confident and that can trans translate into anything, right? That can be academics. That can be 
if you're in a play or that means talking to people because you're shy, all the different things. Um, you know, it, it's it, she she had the ability. She wasn't capitalizing on it. She wasn't, you know, embracing it. And once she did, she became incredible. So, again, there's so many lessons you can learn from these athletes that really have nothing even to do with, with the gymnastics. I mean, no one reading the book, presumably, uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe there's another, there's going to be another Simone Biles out there, but, um, you know, virtually no one reading the book is going to be an elite gymnast. They may not even do gymnastics, but there's a lot for anybody to learn from that and saying, geez, once Simone Biles believed in herself, she became Simone Biles. Right. I mean, even even her age was wrong because she was 15 at the 2012 Olympics. So she couldn't even she had to be 16. So she actually had to sit out there. She's only had like one run of the Olympics. She potentially could have had two. This could be her third Olympics if if it worked out perfectly in terms of her timing. But that still didn't you know, she just went on to the world championships and just started dominating in 2013. Yeah, it's one of the cruel ironies of gymnastics is the timing is everything. So, again, the, the, the generally the peak years. 16 or 17 years old is what you want to be. If you look at back at your, your all around champions, uh, they're almost always that age right in there. And so obviously if you are 15 and nine months at one Olympics and 19 and nine months at the next Olympics, you can miss that and you can win world championships, but far less people pay attention, let alone the sponsors and all of those things uh, that can make you millions. So uh, gymnastics and figure skating are very, very cruel sports. We're talking to Dan Wetzel, national columnist for Yahoo Sports on Ira on Sports. Um, and he has a series of books. And this last latest one is Simone Biles. Uh, you can order on Amazon uh, and Kindle and everything. But you can, he has books on Brady and Messi and, uh, and LeBron James and Steph Curry. I mean, really get all the books. I mean, you should really get every single one of the books and have your kids read them and read, them, read along with the kids when they're reading it. Um, you talk about Simone in the 2016 Olympics. And what I was shocked is, and you see it on TV and you think it's fake. You know, it's like she's competing with Allie Raisman and she's going for one and Allie's. But they they really worked well to get like they really support each other. And, and you really and you spent time in the book saying that they were their best cheerleaders and it, and it wasn't fake and it was true. And I was just shocked when they because you are a team. You do compete in the team. But then you have all the other you have the all around and the four other events where you're individuals. And you mentioned how they you know, she was such a supportive teammate, but their teammates loved her, too. Yeah, I think part of what Simone is that they know she's better. Um, there is definitely, I mean, it's, it's okay, I'd like to win the gold, but I can't do what she's doing. And again, it, some of this is at the start, your start line. You just can't do the same maneuvers. Um, in gymnastics, there's often these teams, uh, they come together, they want to win the gold as a team. Uh, you know, even if on the team, you don't always compete against each other. But in that battle, in those those six months that lead into who, who's going to get a chance to compete in the all-around. Because one thing about uh, the way they have it, first off, next time there's only four people on the Olympic team. Right now they're, they're in the past there's been five. So you're talking about the entire country, all the people competing, and there's only four spots. So it is a cutthroat battle to do that. I mean, even the, the Olympic basketball dream team got, you know, 13, 15 people on it. Um, so you're talking four and one of them's already taken. So there's three. So there's a fight to get on. And then they decide you can only put two of your team into the all-around, which is what everybody wants to do. And literally uh, the top three gymnasts in the world last time were were all Americans. Lori Hernandez, Allie Raceman, and, and Simone Biles. They would have got one, two, three. 
Lori Hernandez got left out. So um, it was just Raceman and, and Biles. So there are some battles on that. But I do think Simone kind of transcends that because there isn't really a who's better, who's better. It's, okay, she's the best. Um, and she's she, I don't know, she just has a way of caring so much about the others. She has a way of being very unfocused until it's time to be focused. Uh, and I think that helps with her. When you, when you talk to her, their teammates, it's like she's the one goofing around at the, the Olympic Village um, and way more relaxed. And they're sitting there going, my God, you, you know, you're competing for a gold medal tomorrow. Why, why aren't you relaxed? You know, because she was up for so many events. She was, it was a grind of almost two straight weeks of, you know, incredible mental and physical focus. And yet she's out there having as much fun as anybody uh, when they're just lounging around back at the, at the athlete village. And then in 2018 and 19, you talk about how she's now taken to the Usain Bolt type of level in that not only is she winning the all around competitions, but she's winning gold in almost every other event. So, which is shocking. And, and so she's setting himself out perfectly. She, for the Olympics this year, she would have, you know, she, how many golds could she have won? I mean, it could have been five, could have been six almost. So it was just, uh, the, the max you can win is six. You can win team all around. And then there are four individual events. Uh, so, uh, the most that's ever been won is four, um, you know, can she get to five? Obviously, all around, all around, and team the U.S. She should win, and the U.S. will win. Uh, you know, now we're now a year away, so we'll see. But those are kind of almost locked down. And then it's how many individual events can you do and and win? Uh, she is weaker on bars than the others, so it's hard to say if she could get to six. Uh, five would be incredible, but obviously six would be the ultimate goal. <laughs> you just walk into the Olympics, and I just took you all out. Um, I think that if if we will see where we're at in a year and whether that's even feasible, whether she would get that opportunity. But I do think that would be a very, very compelling thing for people to watch in 2021 if they have the Olympics um, to see, boy, here's something that no one has literally ever done, just a, a clean sweep of everything. And, I, you know, you never say never. There's going to be another. But, boy, it's going to take a while before someone else could even contemplate uh, trying to win every single discipline and then team and all obviously all around. And then your next book is on Patrick Mahomes, another one person who is <laughs> transcending what we thought could be accomplished in the quarterback position. So I'm, I'm sure I think that book they said is coming out in the fall. So that'd be a great book to, to read coming up. Patrick's a lot of fun and um, he's an interesting, uh, uh, just a brilliant athlete. Uh, he was he, he was drafted as a baseball player, was a great baseball hitter and pitcher, uh, was a terrific basketball player. Um, a lot of people think that was his best sport. His issue, he could have played college basketball. His problem is his height uh, in terms of the NFL. And a lot of people thought, certainly growing up, I mean, he, could, he can drive a golf ball 300 yards. He can, you know, horseshoe, whatever you're doing. Patrick Mahomes can probably do it better than you. Um, uh, but he ended up playing football, obviously, and and it, but wasn't wasn't the elite recruit. I mean, he went to like Texas Tech, and he wasn't the number one draft pick. But he's almost the the epitome of the multi sport uh, star, which is is a fleeting thing. Um, you know, where it's specialization and specialization. This is a guy who played three different sports in high school. Actually, did four because he'd run track sometimes. Just your natural, pure athlete. And at the end, he's finally focused on football when he got to college. Now, it's hard to be that good of an athlete and get college scholarships without doing that, but just an incredible thing. But if you watch him play football, 
you can almost see it. Some of his most famous plays are are where he looks like a point guard out in the field and he's shaking around someone and, and, and hitting an open receiver or the arm strength to be able to throw, you know, at all different angles that you get from, from baseball or just the will to compete. Uh, really fascinating story about Patrick Mahomes and, a, and a, just a terrific, uh, terrific young man. And Dan, one last question. While we have here considered one of the top college football experts in the country, any feeling in terms of where we're going with college football this year? I mean, we're down here in Florida and West Palm Beach, and it's certainly very popular, but it, it's looking very doubtful. But uh, I just was wondering if it, what's, your, what's your sense of the college, the college football season coming up? Well, yeah, I talked to a lot of athletic directors and, and, and conference commissioners and stuff. There's definitely a lot of apprehension. Um, nobody really knows. I think you know, can you have college if they don't open the colleges in the fall? You know, can you have, you, are you going to play with no fans? Uh, different things that go on. There's just so many unknowns with this, with this virus. We also don't know what progress we would make in treatments and, and, and things like that in the next two months, right? We have almost everybody in the world working on this. Um, do we come up with something that, that, that weakens, or, you know, or improves the, the attack against it? So there's so many variables up and down, but if, if, not, if there aren't great improvements, I think the college football season is, is definitely in a lot of, a lot of trouble. Um, of all the sports you would try to run during this pandemic, college football is probably the hardest. There's 120 teams spread out all over the country, huge rosters, huge staffs, um, a million different viewpoints on how important the game is, and you have essentially unpaid labor. Uh, there's no players union or something like that. Like you can play, you could probably figure out how to play a golf tournament. You, you separate them. You could play a, an NBA game maybe in, in a, in a sterile gym and you protect everyone and guys are making millions of dollars and they won't take that risk. How do you do college football? Right. Uh, it's just a total, what we love about it is it's a total free for all. Uh, that, that doesn't really work when you're trying to fight something like this. So it's, it's definitely a perilous time for, for the 2020 college football season, but. There is a lot of room still for progress that could could change the scope of it pretty quickly. So we'll see. Well, thank you. I've, Dan, I really appreciate you coming on. It's Dan Wetzel, the national columnist for, for Yahoo Sports, and who has the Epic Athlete series of books. This last one is on Simone Biles. So, Dan, thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Balsamo, great stuff uh, from Dan Wetzel there. So, Ira, we were doing our offensive picks or our offensive analysis uh, for the for the upcoming NFL draft. Let's talk a little defense. And the name that everyone's talking about is Chase Young and that he could be just a generational player. Yeah, 16 and a half sacks last year. Um, in two games, he was suspended. He probably could have had 22 or 23. He dominated Penn, Wisconsin. I guess Penn State, I watched him at the game I wasn't that impressed with. But look, everyone has him going two, three, four. Um, they're like, you know, all pro for seven years. I mean, the players. So I, I'm hearing like 15 years of yeah. all pro is what we're supposed to expect from Chase Young. Uh, Kalevon Chasen from LSU, he's going to be a first rounder also. First rounder also, but not last year. He was, he had an There's ankle. a big drop off from Chase to the next right. guy. He had an ankle injury last year. He only had six and a half sacks. In 2018, he missed the 
whole year with a knee injury, and uh, but he can get pushed around a little bit. He, even though he's six four two fifty four, you know, just he's he's going to be a draft in the first round, but he's not the lock that Chase Young is. Uh, what about uh, Yetter Gross Matos from your boys at Penn State? Two thousand eighteen, if he would have went out, I think he'd been one of the top five picks. He looked great in two thousand eighteen. He had eight sacks, twenty for a loss, was dominating last year. As we said earlier. Just played in the wrong position. Seemed to get more. Everybody knew about him. Was doubled. He wasn't really highly recruited as a as a as a high school senior. And it, people didn't know about him as a freshman. But really came on that sophomore year. But then last year had a little drop off. But still a first round pick. Looking for him. He runs a four seventy three forty, and he's two hundred sixty five pounds. So and these guys, it's funny. Like I'll see Gross Matos go like seventeen to the Falcons. Then I see him fall to the to the Giants in the second round. So there's a big discrepancy here. Finally, let's talk about AJ Epineza because he's another guy. He could be the second one off the board. He could be the fifth. He's someone who went to the combine and had a bad combine. He ran like a 5.04 40. Um, and, uh, but he had, you know, some games he gave, he just, he, he had just, he was like not existent, but he had a couple of big games against USC, he had two sacks. I wasn't impressed with him against Penn State that well. Uh, but now he's someone who is like, could be first or second round pick. Let's go to defensive tackle and Derek Brown from Auburn. Yeah, I mean, he's someone who everyone just loves. I mean, he's just, I mean, it's amazing why Auburn didn't win more games. You're talking about all these Auburn players. It's all over the place. Against Florida, just as a defensive tackle, just dominating against, uh, had strip sacks, two fumble recoveries, uh, just just an amazing, from an interior position, like someone who could, again, is going to be a pro Bowl player for a while. Yeah, they're comparing him to Aaron Donald, and I'd say that's a nice, nice comparison to have. Javon Kinlaw is getting a lot of uh, press, too. Another player who was shot up in the Senior Bowl. He went there. People said from South Carolina during the year, it's like, ah, oh, he was okay. South Carolina had a weird team. But he goes to Senior Bowl. People are like, where was he during the regular? So <laughs> he looked great. People loved him. And people think 6'5", 315, he's going to go in the top 20. Ira, there's only one linebacker in this draft that matters to me. And I want the Giants to take him at number four so badly. It's Isaiah Simmons. And this guy is a freak. Okay. I've watched tapes of him now. I, I've watched him play all last year. Number 11 from Clemson. I, I saw him live in the championship game. I, he's the best defensive player I've seen in years. I, I, he can line up on the left side of the field, and he'll be on the right side. He's faster than everyone on the field. Mm-hmm. He ran a 4 Three nine forty. A 6'4", 238. I, I, I can't, that's it like, scary. It is like a truck. It's a, it's like a Mack truck going like a like a Ferrari yeah. speed. He's fast. He can tackle. How about this? At snaps, he snapped. And we want everyone to be flexible, play different positions. He, outside linebacker, 160 snaps. Inside linebacker, 121 snaps. Cornerback, 300 snaps. Safety, 218. He can do everything on the field. He is like Devin Bush for the Steelers, but even better. I, I mean, honestly, if you don't want Burrow, you don't want a quarterback, I think he's better than Chase Young. I think Isaiah Simmons is going to go down as one of the best defensive players. I, if he's not one of the greatest defensive players in NFL, I mean, he's a Hall of Fame. Like, to me, Isaiah Simmons is a Hall of Famer. I would, I would, I, he's tremendous. And that's why I want the Giant. This guy needs to be in blue. Yeah. Um, let's shift to cornerbacks. We don't have that much time left. I Listen, I like Jeff Okuda. I, Ohio State has cranked out some high-quality cornerbacks. They've also had some duds. Looking at you, Eli Apple. But Jeff Okuda is ahead of Ohio, uh, Isaiah Simmons on many, many polls. And he's going to go top six. And I want to jump back to Ken Murray because they oh, used sure. to at Oklahoma. Um, I see a lot of people like Ken Murray from Oklahoma, and they compare him to Isaiah Simmons. I, I'm telling you, there's no there, the gap is enormous. I, I don't understand how people think Ken Murray is as good as Isaiah Simmons, and you're going to see Murray go in the first round, and even Patrick Queen of LSU. Uh, there's just I mean, I've, they were all in the same field; they all played. You could see it. Ken Murray gets beat. He doesn't tackle. He's not as fast as Isaiah Simmons. Like it's not even a comparison. I, I just think that Isaiah is so much better. But as quarterback, Akuda. 
I'm not sold on him either. I, I don't know. Everyone wants him to go. So, I, you know, against Penn State, I think he was he got beat. I, I, I see guys get beat. I'm not, I'm not sold on him. I, he had nine passes broken up this year, three interceptions. But people say he's better than Jalen Ramsey, better than Denzel Ward, future Hall of Pro Bowler. Um, not sold on him. C.J. Henderson's going to go pretty high from Florida. Florida has the play. You know, he <laughs> – he, you know, the problem with C.J. Henderson, he's like Deion Sanders. He'll, 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 he won't tackle anybody. He won't do anything. But he is he'll just, he'll, yeah. he's like Deion Sanders. He'll just cover everybody. He's long arms. He's fast. He recovers. So if you're looking for someone in a corner of that position, but, you know, a lot of, he, look, he's going to be a first-round pick. Any other corners you want to touch on? Um, uh, maybe, you know, we know about A.J. Terrell. From Clemson, and at first everyone thought he was going to be this great pick because you see him on TV all the time. But they took him going for the second and third round, and LSU destroyed him. He's someone who, in the championship game, probably cost himself a million dollars because he got beat by so by Clemson the whole game. And um, going to safety, it seems like the consensus is going to be Xavier McKinney from Bama. Right again, you know, I I think he's good. I think he's going to go lower in the first top, like I think like fifteenth or twenty fifth. If you have a safety, usually the quarterbacks are more valuable than you would put someone in safety. But uh, you know, he had some games where I just didn't think he was that impressive, especially the LSU game. You know, I see Grant Delpit go around pick eighteen. And then I see him go around pick 60. So I'm really confused as to where he's going to go. Again, if you watch him in that Clemson game, he had trouble. He was he had trouble. He did not. I felt like he did not have a great national championship game. And uh, so I and again, some of the big games against Alabama, he gave up some. He got beat a bunch of times. So, I mean, it's like another. You know, it's hard. I mean, if you're a quarterback or safety, you're going to get beat. But the point is, is that, mm, I don't know, McKinney's probably a little bit better than Delpit. But I, I, you can get, again, the linebackers are elite. You know, drafting them is probably better. Anybody else you want to touch on before we got to wrap it up? I, see, I, you know, I keep hearing this Jeremy Chin from Southern Illinois. It's like one of those players that people keep mentioning. And so if you see this Jeremy Chin, who no one like a month ago was putting in the top three or four rounds, people have him going in, in up to the first round. We are out of time. Ira, let's thank Dan Wetzel so much for popping on tonight. We're out of time. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night, Iron Sports.